when 2017 hits, it'll be a brand new era for the Missouri General Assembly. And House Speaker Todd Richardson has an ambitious agenda for how to proceed. The Poplar Bluff Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And joining us in Jefferson City after what I would assume is was a marathon commute on Friday from what I saw on social media, we have as our special guest... This is Todd Richardson, Speaker of the House. Is is it true that you were like trying to get back to Poplar Bluff on Friday through an ice storm, or was was my were my eyes deceiving me on social media? You, your eyes did not deceive you. What's normally about a two and a half uh, hour trip took me ten and a half hours. So I left uh, West County at about three thirty in the afternoon, and it was uh, well into the next morning before I got home. It's a great trip. Oh wow! Yeah, it, but, it took me three hours made, to get from St. Charles to I, Western. I, I made it. I made it home safely, which I was, which I was thankful for. So it was uh, a slow go, though, for sure. We are thankful you made it back too. But we are not here to talk about your endless commute. We are here to talk about uh, the new reality in the Missouri House and Senate with incoming Republican Governor Eric Greitens. So I'll just start it off with that. Um, this will be the first time under your speakership or any recent speakership that the legislature and the governor are of the same party. I, I know from talking with you right after the election that you were tremendously excited about this opportunity, but there's also a great deal of expectation that you're, that the Republicans are basically in charge of everything now, and if they don't do a good job, the voters are going to make them pay a price. So with those differing dichotomies, what's kind of your feeling going into 2017? Well, I think you were incredibly optimistic and uh, still really excited about uh, about the opportunity that's in front of us. We have the opportunity now uh, to impart some some long lasting positive change uh, on Missouri, which is why a lot of us ran for office in the first place. And it's a unique opportunity, as you noted. It's an it's it's not been an opportunity that Republicans have had very often in this state. Only four years uh, since Republicans took the majority have have they been able to uh, to have a Republican governor to work with, and so. Uh, we're really we're really excited about uh, about the possibilities, and you know we're also mindful of of that big responsibility that comes with it. And I think Missourians, yeah. you know, wanted to see a, a different government than they had. That's uh, why the results of the election were the way they were. Um, so we're going to be mindful of that, and we're going to be working hard every day when the, when the session starts uh, to make sure we deliver on uh, those expectations. Now, um, have you talked to Governor-elect Greitens? Uh, I know you. You weren't necessarily know knew him that well before the election. Just interested in what interchange you've had with him, and yeah, we've so been far. we've been meeting on a meeting and speaking on a regular basis now. Uh, I think you know for the last uh, three weeks we've had uh, good in person meetings here in in Jeff City, and they're working very hard on the transition, and we're working really hard to try to get. Uh, the, uh, the the legislature ready to go uh, on the 4th of January. So the interaction's been very good and it's been very positive. Well, one of the interesting things about this is even though you all are from the same party, um, we have a, a governor from St. Louis for the first time in, in decades, the same time we have the legislative leaders who are from outstate. Do you think that rural-urban thing is going to play in at all to some of the um, 
deliberations going forward? I don't think so. And I, I don't think so because a lot of the challenges and a lot of the needs are, are very similar in, in both areas of the state. You know, whether we're talking about economic development or public safety or reforming entitlement programs, those are just as much an issue in, in rural Missouri as they are in, in the St. Louis area. So um, I, I think we're going to find a lot of common ground in dealing with those areas. I'm really encouraged to see the governor-elect place uh, such an importance on public safety, which is, I think is uh, an important issue for us to try to tackle. So I think we're going to find more common ground on those issues. I don't expect a big uh, rural-urban divide again. Public safety was a big emphasis in the gubernatorial campaign, both in the Republican primary and in the general election. And I'm just curious what the state government can do to really battle what I see are local crime and public safety issues in St. Louis and Kansas City and elsewhere. Is there is there funding or, or state assistance that they can provide to deal with the problem? Or is it also going to take more than just beefing up the amount of police? It's also going to take dealing with economic disparities, educational no disparities, yeah. and, and those types of things. No, no, no question about it. And I think there are some things that people would, would see more directly uh, in the public safety realm. But to your point, Jason, you know, we're going to have to get at the root of some of these problems. And the root of, of, of the problems is, is, is poverty um, on a widespread basis. It's a lack of good educational opportunities and really some communities that have lost uh, a sense of hope. And, you know, when people uh, start to lose that sense that things can get better and with, you know, with hard work and, and diligence, you can build a better life for yourself, you start to see some of the kinds of public safety challenges that we've got. So, listen, the, the first and foremost, we're going to be a, a general assembly, and I know the governor-elect is going to be a governor who stands with law enforcement, who has their back every single day as they're out trying to, to keep us safe. But we're also going to be serious about addressing the education and, and the workforce challenges uh, that plague some of those communities as well. Are there anything specific that you're talking about here? Well, I think there are two pieces of legislation that uh, that we'll work on uh, right out of the gate. One is is a uh, blue alert system, which is a system that works similar to an amber alert um, when you have a, an officer in, in involved incident. Um, and the other is to look at what our penalties are for uh, people who commit violence against a law enforcement officer. Now, those are two things the governor-elect has talked about. Those are two things that some of our members have worked on in the past. Um, and so those are two things I think you'll see very, very early out of the legislature in terms of kind of some pro-public safety uh, agenda. But as it relates to, you know, the, the sort of underlying factors of what's happening in these places, we're going to take a hard look at education reform again. And we've worked on these issues uh, repeatedly, but expanded access to good educational opportunities, um, particularly in some areas where our school districts have not been getting the job done, I think is important. Uh, are you referring maybe to uh, vouchers or other things to help? private schools in this or do you think or, or is this more about strengthening the public Well, I think system? it's both. Um, and and I think the more you know kind of focused we'll, we'll first look at how we continue to expand the charter school network and the network of good charter schools uh, that are operating in the state. But at the end of the day, we want our public school systems to be better as well. So we're, we're looking forward to the chance to, to work with those partners and find some ways uh, we can strengthen uh, what they're doing and, and their record of success. I was thinking about that as well, because for as long as I've been covering the legislature, whenever they've, whenever the legislature has tried to pass anything that's either purported to be or derided as vouchers, like tuition tax credits or whatnot, they either didn't have enough legislators to pass that or they had a governor like Jay Nixon who vetoed it. Now you have Eric Greitens, who's on record as being more open-minded on this issue. 
Um, even if there is opposition within your caucus, do you see there being a better pathway to get some some you know, quote unquote, school choice things across the finish line and sign in the yeah, law. Yeah, I don't think there's any question. I think education reform has a better chance of, of becoming law more broadly now than it ever has. And it's, uh, you know, they're, they're complicated and complex issues, and we want to make sure we get them right. But, you know, my sense is that we're going to have a strong partner uh, in Governor Greitens to, to work with on those issues. And um, I'm really optimistic that for the first time in a long time, there'll be some some substantive reform done. When I was uh, monitoring Twitter a few weeks ago, I saw that you made a speech um, expressing support for paid family leave. Now, I know that this is a big issue for a lot of working families throughout the state. It's a it's an issue that typically Democrats have, have championed. But it, it, in the back of my mind, I always thought this could be something that Republicans get behind because there's an economic development component to it. So I, I wanted you to just lay out why you support it and what you think would be the legislative framework to making it happen. Well, it's an issue that actually Republicans in the legislature have have worked on for uh, for the last couple of years, and and to your point, it isn't it is an economic uh, development issue when you have uh, employees that are facing you know really seminal life events, whether it's the the birth or adoption of a child or the death of a family member. Um, it's very very difficult um, to to not need some time off of work, and if if you're not being paid for that time off, it's very difficult to to keep the job, and so. Uh, you know, there's good statistics that show that by allowing some measure of family paid family leave, that you can reduce the the need for people to go on public assistance by as much as 30 or 40 percent. And so that's something that I think is is very attractive when we start trying to look at how we keep people in good family supporting jobs. But what we're going to start with on the question of paid family leave, and it's probably not the only thing we're going to consider, but we're going to go back to making sure that this is a benefit that's available to all state workers. And we're, you know, I really think it's important for the state, if we're going to talk about the importance of this policy, to lead by example uh, and to make that a, a benefit that's that's available to state employees. So are you, so you're talking about doing something as far as for state employees as opposed to making a, a blanket policy for private industry. So is the idea to, by example, encourage private industry to follow suit? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we're going to start, and we really want to use that as a starting point for a broader conversation about, you know, what that what that policy needs to be. And it's a, you know, it's a bill that the House passed uh, via amendment uh, last year, and so we'll come back to that. But it, I don't think that's where the end of the discussion uh, happens either. I think we're going to continue to try to make the case for why this is good policy, um, and why we think it makes sense for every Missouri employee. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was health care. So even though Okay, Congress is going to decide what they're going to do with uh, Obamacare, but there's going to be fallout on the states. I've seen some figures in the last few days that if the ACA is repealed, um, even though Missouri doesn't have its own marketplace, a lot a lot of Missourians have been using the federal marketplace. There have been estimates that about up to 500,000 Missourians could end up all of a sudden without health care. Um, and, of course, you've got the pressure on the rural hospitals already um, dealing with the Medicaid issue, which is now probably defunct. So my question is, how is the General Assembly going to deal with this if all of a sudden you have hundreds of thousands of Missourians who don't have health care all of a sudden when you're trying to deal with other issues? Yeah, well, health care is a huge, huge, humongous challenge, and it's a challenge in, in every state right now with a lot of uncertainty, you know, depending on how uh, and when uh, Congress r- does their their ACA repeal, um, but I, I fundamentally believe that 
when you allow more freedom and choice in the marketplace, you're going to create cheaper and, and better options for people to, to have health care. Um, and so for, for our part, we're, we're very, very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Nobody wants people to be without health care, and nobody wants uh, people to be without access to, to affordable health care. Um, the question really comes down to, to how do we achieve that. And when you see the kind of growth um, that was happening in uh, ACA plans, the kind of price growth that was happening with those plans, um, I'm not sure how, how long that model was, was going to be sustainable. As it relates to Medicaid specifically, we're going to have to find some ways to bend the cost curve with Medicaid. Medicaid spending grows every single year. It's up, you know, it generally faster than the rate of growth uh, in the economy. Um, and so we're going to have to find some ways to deliver the services uh, that we're delivering today, but but do them in a more cost-effective manner. So um, the the good the good thing is that I think there's going to be a lot of state-level innovation that's happening in the area of healthcare, um, and that innovation you know that was really stifled over the last uh, you know six or seven years uh, because we had an administration that in, in Washington that you couldn't work with. We're optimistic that we're going to have an administration in Washington now that we can work with. And I'm confident that if we go to work on it, we can deliver a really innovative uh, Medicaid program that provides good, high-quality care, but also does it at a lower cost. Going back to paid family leave for a second, would if you do expand it into the private sector, would that be something that the legislature would they would pass a bill saying businesses have to provide X number of weeks for paid family leave and the state will, will reimburse the cost or have a mechanism to, to, to make the cost more affordable for businesses? Like how like logistically are you thinking that would work yeah, at we're, this point? We're going to take a look at that, Jason. I mean, nothing nothing firm has been decided there. We're going to look at some other states that, that try to do this well. And that's why I say I think, I think the issue, you know, happens in multiple steps. I think the first step is to have the state you know, lead, leading by example and making sure that that benefit's available for state employees. And then, you know, how, how we achieve the rest of it is is something that's a bit of an open question at this point. Now, the other issue that I think is going to come up almost immediately is, is right to work, which, Joe, could you just explain what right to work is? Okay. Right to work is when um, there's a law that bars employers or unions from requiring all workers in a bargaining unit to pay fees or dues. Now, I, I think it's almost a, a fait accompli at this point that this is going to pass the legislature now that you don't need the veto-proof majority anymore. Uh, is that a fair assessment that this could actually be passed in the first couple of months? Or do you think there could be a longer drawn-out process? No, I anticipate it won't be a long drawn-out pro process. It's Listen, this is something that's been a priority for both the House and the Senate. Uh, for a number of years now, it was a priority uh, for the governor-elect. He, he spent a lot of time on the campaign trail talking about it. And so I think right to work, along with a range of other issues, will be part of uh, uh, an early session agenda, and I anticipate they'll move pretty quickly. Now, one of the issues has been, aside from timing, is how broad it will be. And uh, is this something that uh, it's going to be dealing just with future contracts? Do you envision it's going to be also retroactive for current contracts, there, I've had some uh, labor people say there may be lawsuits if it is retroactive, and um, and also paycheck protection, which is kind of the deal for public employees. Is there going to be something with that? I'm just curious how you're going to how, what you envision at this point the product looking like when it 
gets to the House floor? Well, we, we've got a number of different versions of, of right to work that have been filed, and we've got multiple versions of paycheck protection that, that have been filed. And so part of our early session process and making sure that is making sure that our committees work through through exactly those issues. They consider the constitutionality of it. But what we want at the end of the day is a really strong uh, right to work bill to, to hit the House floor that's, you know, appropriately dressed the, the legal and the constitutional challenges. And I'm confident that our that our members can can get there. You know, what you've seen in states that have that have passed full blown um, right to work is you've seen pretty dramatic economic recovery in a lot of those places. And so we're very mindful of, you know, the experience that's happened in Indiana and Michigan and Wisconsin, you know, along with states that have had right to work for a long time. And the interesting thing, you know, about right to work as a policy has been that you see some of the fastest growing rates of union membership in right to work states. So we think it puts the state in a more competitive uh, posture than, than it's been to compete for manufacturing jobs. And um, I'm confident that we'll get, get a version of the floor early, and I'm confident that that version will be right. Now, will you be looking at the prevailing wage r- soon as well or not? Yeah, it's listen. It's an issue we look at uh, every single year, and and look at how we you know deliver uh, state projects and government projects in in the cost effective manner, you know. And I don't think anybody uh, is is for just uh, lowering wages, but when you look at how that that prevailing wage gets set in some parts of the state, most people would tell you it's not a real accurate reflection of what the prevailing wage actually is. So. There's a number of uh, ideas on kind of how you get at that, but I anticipate that'll be something that uh, we'll be taking a look at as well. Okay, tax credits, which had been something that had been big on uh, Nixon's agenda and on some Republican leaders' agenda, was trying to curb the state tax credits. Uh, Greitens, obviously, he's he's on a learning curve on some of that stuff. I haven't heard him say much about tax credits, it, but it, continue. Exactly. John. Well, that's why I'm bringing it up. So... Uh, do you have any thoughts on what the General Assembly might do on that this year, or is that something that's going to be dealt with down the road once Greitens gets more familiar with well, it? Well, I think it's something that, that we obviously want to work with the governor-elect on and, and get the policy to, to the right to the right place. Um, but I think our tax policy more more generally is certainly something that's going to be uh, on, on the agenda. And what is in the toolbox um, in terms of economic development tools, uh, be, there, be they tax credits or other things, is certainly something that's going to be a part of the conversation. I think what we're going to focus on in the in the early part of session, though, is is how do we how do we create the right sort of general environment that we think will spur economic growth and development. And I anticipate there'll be a lot more energy spent on on that, at least in the early part of the session, than than some of the more uh, specific economic development incentives. Well, a session or two ago, the big focus had been on changing the culture in Jeff City, and. Um, I know that had been well. That's that's one of the reasons you end up being speaker. Uh, looking at it now, and um, you know, you may have some tension just within your house membership because of a case over here. Um, what are your thoughts at this point? Do you think there's been enough done to affect the culture? Do you think there's more that needs to be done? Is there anything specific that's going to be done this session, or is that another issue that may end up being? No. Down no, I, I think it's it's an issue that we're going to continue to focus on. And, and I've always viewed this mission as sort of a, a process that we were going to keep driving towards as long as I'm the speaker. And I'm I'm pleased with the progress that we've made, you know, uh, undertaking an effort to, to revamp our internship program, to completely overhaul uh, our sexual harassment policies in the House with with real consequences, real teeth, real training uh, for our members and staff. 
um, is something that I'm proud we were able to get done. We were also able to move the ball down the field on on ethics reform last year, and I'm 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 pleased with that. But we're not finished with that with that effort at all. And so, as I said at the end of session last year, we're going to continue our focus on trying to eliminate lobbyist gifts. It's going to be one of the very early bills uh, out of the house again, and and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to actually get something across the finish line and and signed into law. Um, and we're also going to continue the process of trying to to create the right kind of environment to lead by example here in the house. I think it was an important. Uh, issue for us to take on, and and we're not gonna we're not gonna stop uh, with our focus on on those issues. You might have heard uh, me furiously typing on my phone. It's because I was looking up a press release from your Democratic counterparts. Now, obviously, the Democrats are in the super minority, but I have a press release in front of me that says that they want to ban all lobbyist gifts. They want to expand the so-called revolving door. I guess from from one year to two years. Uh, they want to do a lot of things that even the the Republican governor elect uh, wanted to do. So it, it it seems to me like there may actually be a lot of unanimity between the parties in the House. The the problem has been getting some of these ideas through the Senate, where there's a lot more opposition. Is that kind of your sense too, or could you expect some of these ideas to face some? Well, I, I mean, look, I I think the, the the first thing I'll say, so, somewhat sarcastically and somewhat tongue in cheek, is I'm I'm glad to see that. Democrats supporting the agenda we laid out on ethics reform at the beginning of uh, of the last session, um, but th- look, these are th- these are important issues for the House, and they have been. You know w- what their ultimate you know fate is in the Senate is a little hard for me to predict at this point, but I do sense more openness and opportunity to get something across the line um, on those issues than we've had in the past, um, and so we're going to con- we're going to try to. Put this bill over in the Senate very early. Uh, we're going to go work, you know, individually with with senators to try to, to get this bill across the finish line. And uh, I'm confident at the at the end of the session that we will have some more forward momentum and some more progress in the area of ethics reform. Every time we talked about ethics reform in the past few years, often our question would be, "What about campaign donation limits?" Well, we're not going to ask that question now because there has been a constitutional amendment, Amendment Two, as it's called, that has instituted donation limits for now. We don't know what the court is going to do. I I think I've heard, though, even from Democrats and even some Republican supporters that there are elements of Amendment 2, which they don't feel go far enough. Like, it doesn't cover local elections. There have been manners and scenarios that have been outlined that they could be, you know, circumvented or whatnot. And, And I guess from the other end of the spectrum, there are just some people that don't believe philosophically in Amendment 2's curbing of donation limits. Knowing that it's a constitutional amendment and you aren't, you don't have a huge amount of of power to pass statutes. Is there anything on that front that you could see in reaction to that amendment being done? Well, I I, th- I think Jason, it's a little bit of an open question at this point, and some of it, you know, does depend on what the outcome of the litigation is going to be. But you know, making sure we have a a fair and open and transparent campaign finance system is is certainly something we want to have. And you know, I'm. There are a number of issues, a number of questions that seem to have been left unaddressed by Amendment 2. And so, you know, to the extent that there's an opportunity to, to clarify uh, some of those things and make sure we have a workable system, I think um, we'll certainly be open to that. But I do think it's going to take a little time to figure out exactly what sort of universe we're operating in uh, within Amendment 2 to identify what, if anything, needs to be done there. I've been talking to some uh, officials in both parties about what this does as far as political parties, the party structure, which had been more powerful under campaign donation limits than afterwards because the money 
without campaign donation limits, the money was just going directly to candidates. Uh, without getting into the philosophical issues, okay, this on some level appears to restore uh, the prominence of political parties. I'm interested in your take with some restrictions. I'm interested in your take on that. Um, is this going to maybe the legislators won't be so busy raising money during session because they're going to be expecting the parties to do it? I'm just interested in your thoughts, um, how this is, might change some things during this session. Yeah, I, I don't I'm not sure, Joe, that anybody really knows um, what, what the answer to that is. And, and you rightly point out there has been, you know, a decline in, in the influence of, of party committees for a long time in the United States. And um, I, I'm not sure that that this one amendment is going to completely reverse that trend. Um, you know, the, the, the ability for candidates um, and committees to communicate directly with voters now and not having to, to sort of rely on a party apparatus to do that um, has changed things uh, pretty pretty dramatically. Um, I do think um, Amendment 2 uh, will put some um, some of the need for, for state party committees uh, back in place, but whether it's dramatically changing um, what that relationship is between candidates and state parties, um, I think it's a little too early to say. I want to shift gears a little bit to something that, that was breaking over the, the, the news wire a few hours ago. As I'm sure that you know, the Missouri Development Finance Board is looking to approve tax credits for a proposed soccer stadium in St. Louis. It's, it's crazy that we're talking about this again, because a year ago we were talking about a proposed football stadium in St. Louis that obviously people aren't talking about much anymore because it was a failure. But... Um, I think that the, the, the wrinkle here is, and I noticed this from looking at the board's membership, that, that board is operating with, with, with a membership of people on expired terms, which means when, when, as, soon as, he, as soon as he gets into office, Eric Greitens could basically turn that board into dominated by his appointees. And, and the governor-elect just put out a statement saying that he's opposed to this project, which purportedly means if you put two and two together – if these tax credits were passed after he was inaugurated and he changed the composition of the board, they wouldn't end up passing. And that may be why they're trying to pass it so quickly right now with Nixon appointees on this board. So that's a little bit of a convoluted backdrop. But with that as a backdrop, do you have any concerns about the way this process is going, that they may be trying to approve these tax credits before Greitens gets in and 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 he has the potential to basically kill tax credits for this. Yeah, proposal. I think the, the the governor elect ought to have the opportunity to uh, to, to make his appointments before this decisions uh, rush through. Whatever you think about the outcome um, of the process, r- r- rushing it through uh, to prevent the governor elect from having his people on the board, I think is is a mistake. Um, so I, I would hope that uh, that they wouldn't do that and and give him the the opportunity. To, to make those appointments and, and make sure that we have people have plenty of time to vet the project. Could there be any legislative fallout from this? I've heard rumblings from certain senators that they may want to get rid of the Missouri Development Finance Board or com- really change the way it, it doles out these tax credits, because there have been other tax credits that have been given to prior sports-related developments before. If something like this happens, could you see a legislative impact I don't I think there's any question. I, I mean, I think to to your point, this is the second year in a row um, that we've been talking about um, 
these types of credits being being issued and a lot of legislative opposition to them. So I don't think there'd be any question that there's going to be a desire for the legislature to, to review how those projects uh, get get awarded and what the limits uh, limits of the money available uh, for MDFB are. Um, do, you, do, you, do you have any personal thoughts about this whole proposal? Well, I guess I'd say it this way. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Major League Soccer, Joe. I'm a big fan of sports in St. Louis. I'm not a huge fan of publicly financing stadiums. Um, and, you know, that was consistent with the approach we took uh, on, on the Rams Stadium uh, last time. I think, you know, projects of this magnitude deserve to have a full legislative vetting before you commit the state to, to millions of dollars in, in long-term debt. Um, and so I, that's, that's the general default position. Now, I have not spent any time looking specifically at the, at the proposal that's available because I don't think there are a whole lot of specifics on the MLS proposal. Keep in mind, we're talking about, you know, an expansion team that might be awarded um, in, in the second round of expansion teams. The first round of expansion teams for MLS hasn't even been awarded yet, and, and St. Louis, if in that mix at all, would be in the, in the second round. So um, that's, our, that's been my general and consistent approach on, on publicly financed stadiums. Not, not a big fan of them. Um, and I think if we're even going to consider them, they need to go through a full-blown legislative process. And just to give our listeners a little bit of background, St. Louis is competing in a mix of about 10 cities. They're going to pick two teams next year, and the expansion fee is $150 million. They're going to pick two teams the following year. The expansion fee is unknown, so it could be $175, $200 million. We don't know. And, uh, you know, competition for those slots are pretty fierce between other cities, and I think this stadium proposal could be pretty key of whether St. Louis gets it or not. Uh, beyond this, are there any other issues that you think are going to be coming up that maybe either people hadn't been on people's minds or your minds before uh, the election, but now are? Anything in particular? Well, I think some things that, that have been talked about and we should expect include a whole universe of tort reform and uh, litigation reform that, that we want to do very early. And I think, you know, as you look overall at, at what this early session agenda is going to look like, it's going to be very heavily focused on trying to create the kind of, of economic environment uh, that we think will allow Missouri's economy to grow at a faster pace than it is today, to allow wages to grow at a faster rate than they are today. And so um, I anticipate that'll be a big part of the agenda. The other thing that we're going to spend some time uh, really focusing on is workforce development. And it's an issue that's you know, not overly partisan, but it's an issue where I think Missouri can really distinguish itself as a leader in the country in terms of how we're doing uh, workforce development. And and um, it's a critical issue both economically, it's a critical issue for dealing with some of the poverty and the education and the public safety challenges we talked about earlier. So I'm excited about the, the prospect and the possibility on that front as well. Now, when you refer to workforce development, can you be a bit more specific, like an example of what well, you're talking about? Well, I think about? it's, uh, if you look across Missouri, there is a huge need uh, right now for, for people with skills across the skills spectrum. Um, you know, we have a huge need for, for welders in certain parts of the state. We have a huge need for engineers in certain parts of the state. So how do we create the kind of education system that's delivering what the workforce needs in terms of skill sets across that spectrum? And how do we make sure that, that we have available the, the sort of customized job training um, that a lot of employers rely on? And Missouri has a customized job training program. It's not a program that uh, a lot of people think works as efficiently as it should. So what we want to do is really look at the overall issue of workforce development in a comprehensive fashion. 
we know we have the assets and the institutions in the state um, to be able to, to deliver that workforce. It's just a matter of how do we uh, get the, the kind of coordination and the kind of resources in place to make sure that we're delivering exactly what the workforce uh, needs. And by extension, how we're delivering people the kinds of skills that they need uh, to get a good paying job. Um, and so I, I, I think that's the kind of broad focus that, uh, that we're going to take. And it's probably going to take us a couple of steps to get there, but I think it's a huge opportunity for the state of Missouri. Well, it seems like every session the social issues come up, at least in the second half. And so I'm talking about abortion, guns, uh, gay rights, that sort of thing. Do you envision a particular legislation coming up in that regard, or is that something that may not be as high a profile? Well, our, our first priority, as I said, is going to be to focus on uh, creating the right kind of economic environment. Um, but this is still a, a pro-life, uh, pro-Second Amendment uh, legislature. Um, and so to the extent that there are things we think we can do that, that add protections for life and or further protect the Second Amendment, then, then we'll consider them. But the first thing we're going to focus on is, is creating the, the right kind of, of environment here in Missouri to really have an economic trans- transformation in the state. And there's uh, an, a whole lot of work that has to be done there, and that's why you're going to see us prioritize that stuff at the very early procession. For the last question that I have before we let you go, and, and this is the question I guess we ask all of our guests who are, are hitting term limits. This is going to be your last term in the Missouri uh, House. A um, lot of speculation about what you're going to do next besides, you know, driving back to, to Poplar Bluff and buying Christmas presents for your family. Have you given any thought about what you're going to do, if anything, in 2018? I mean, there, there are a couple of statewide offices which will be up for election. Um, if you want to announce this on announce this on this show, we would be gr- eternally yeah, grateful. Yeah, we, we could we could set up a big a big tease, and you guys could probably uh, get a few extra people to uh, to download the episode. But Jason, I'm focused. <laughs> yes. I, I'm focused right now on on the job in front of us, which is you know to be the speaker of the house and to to help be a part of of leading this legislature. Uh, to enact some good policies for the state. And so, um, you know, we are just uh, a few weeks removed from the last election cycle. So uh, I'm going to stay focused on the job that uh, that my caucus and my constituents elected me to do for now. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll have plenty of time to think about uh, what, if anything, uh, happens in 18 uh, down the road. There's only 750-ish days until the next election. <laughs> let, let, let's keep it that way for now. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. We, we appreciate your time, as always. Uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And, and what is your complicated Twitter handle again, Mr. Speaker? It, it, is, it, it is very complicated. At rep underscore T. Richardson. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Mm-hmm.